Hello and welcome to episode 12. Thank you for joining me today in our pursuit of all things movie-related, past, present, and future. Also, some fun trivia that will get your mental movie motor running is always in order. My name is Frank, and I am a suburbanite in the Boston, Massachusetts area, and this is Silver Screeners. At the time of this recording, it is the 10th of July, it's a Saturday, and earlier this week, we did learn of the passing of movie director Richard Donner. If you're not quite sure who he is, you might be familiar with some of his most famous work. He directed the 1976 horror classic The Omen, starring Gregory Peck. He also directed all four Lethal Weapons movies throughout the mid-80s into the early 90s. He was behind the camera for 1985's The Goonies, which I covered before in episode 10, so please check that out if you haven't already, or check it out again if you already have. Among other things, you will hear a few entertaining behind-the-scenes stories about his interactions with Steven Spielberg and with the seven kid actors who played the Goonies. So, oh, and by the way, he also directed the 1988 Christmas comedy starring Bill Murray, Scrooged. Today, though, what felt right was to acknowledge another contemporary classic that he helmed, and that's 1978's Superman the Movie. Now, this is the movie that, in my opinion anyway, made it possible for the comic book superhero genre to become what it is now. Now, maybe what I'm about to say is debatable, maybe not, but maybe it's fair to say that there would be no Batman franchise, there would be no Spider-Man, no Iron Man, if... Superman had not proven first that there is an audience out there for these kinds of stories, you know, that there is real financial viability and box office potency in them. Initially, this episode was going to be another poll like I did last time with Speed and with True Lies. I was going to ask everybody over the socials, which do you prefer, 1989's Batman or 1978's Superman? And then once the news hit that Richard Donna passed away, I removed the poll and said, uh, that just doesn't feel, that just doesn't feel right to, to have that poll up there. So instead, we're going to focus just on Superman. I think that that works because it is a fantastic movie. And speaking of what makes it fantastic, lots of things, of course, but long before every major player in the movies today hopped on board the MCU or the DC Universe bandwagons, Superman did it first. If you take a look at the cast list, you really do have an impressive roster of some 20th century acting powerhouses who lent their talents. You could say that they made acting in this kind of movie, in this genre, respectable, that they gave it some sort of credibility. One of the strongest is the classically trained stage actor Terrence Stamp, who plays the evil General Zod, my favorite. But there's a lineup of other Broadway veterans and movie sensations, Academy Award winners and nominees like Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, Ned Beatty, Valerie Perrine. There's even an amusing cameo by television actor Larry Hagman. This was after his I Dream of Genie gig, but before he did Dallas, so he dipped his toe into the genre too. But to begin at the beginning, let's take a look first at the creation of the character of Superman himself. He was conjured up in the imaginations of two Depression-era teenagers in Cleveland, Ohio, Jerry Siegel, who was a writer, and Joe Schuster, who was an artist. They would 
begin their own amateur magazine that they simply called Science Fiction. It was the third issue when Siegel wrote a short story called The Reign of the Superman, which was about a megalomaniac who has similar superpowers. Afterwards, they reimagined and reinvented the character to be a good guy and turned him into a hero disguised as a human being. By 1938... Detective Comics launched a new magazine called Action Comics, and they offered these two guys $130 for a 13-page story with the hero front and center. And you have to keep in mind that $130, that's in $1938. I mean, that's during the Great Depression, so it wasn't exactly chump change for them at the time. And so, June 1938... Action Comics number one, readers were introduced to Superman. The character went on to debut on screen in animation form, appearing in 14 different animated short films that were released between 1941 and 1943, the World War II years. There was, after that, a live-action serial, Superman, in 1948, and there was a follow-up two years later, a 1950 sequel called Adam Man vs. Superman. Adam, A-T-O-M. But the 1950s was when the character really went mainstream. It was George Reeves who really brought the character really into living rooms throughout the country when he played Superman in the TV series that was called The Adventures of Superman. That ran from 1951 to 57. He even played Superman. He even did a cameo as Superman in a famous episode of I Love Lucy. They wanted him to play Superman, not George Reeves. He's only ever called Superman in that episode. But anyway, there was even a Broadway musical in the mid-60s, 1966's It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. So he really did, the character really did see himself appear in a variety of different formats. And that brings us to 1976, when movie producer Alexander Salkind and his son Ilya, I-L-Y-A, they officially announced in 76 that they had plans to make a big-budget Hollywood treatment of the story. Superman the Movie was released in late 1978. It would receive the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, and it was a tremendous financial success. It launched a franchise. So to revisit the setup of the legend of the character, at least how it's depicted in this film, we got to look first at the opening shots. The very first thing that we see, well, <laughs> press play, go through the FBI warning, the establishing shot is a black and white image of a small boy's hands opening up the, the comic book and reading from the first pages. It's a bird's eye view of the comic book itself. It's like on a table or a desk of some sort. And then it dissolves to the rooftop of the Daily Planet building, which is the newspaper where his alter ego, Clark Kent, and gutsy reporter Lois Lane, they work for editor Perry White alongside photographer Jimmy Olsen. So we have a view of the Daily Planet building. And then we go into these visually grandiose, that's the best phrase I can think of to describe the opening credits, visually just ostentatious. And they fly through space, the opening credits. The first build actor, Marlon Brando. The second build actor, Gene Hackman. 
both make sense because both of them were recent best leading actor Oscar winners for well, Marlon Brando for The Godfather and Gene Hackman for The French Connection. Both are two-time Oscar champs in their respective careers. So, you know, they were, you know, th- th- these are some pretty, you know, they brought their game. Then comes Christopher Reeve's name third. So, kind of strange to have Clark Kent slash Superman build third, but you think about a name like Brando, a name like Hackman, the powerhouses that they were, you can see how in terms of contracts and Screen Actors Guild and that kind of thing, they wanted to, they really wanted to push the fact that, you know, these big names are in this movie. So, they put their names up front and center. Not that Christopher Reeve was you know, a novice, maybe for the movies he was, but he was trained at Juilliard. So, yeah, he wasn't unknown to movie audiences, but, you know, the billing probably did seem fair at the time. I don't know. But Marlon Brando, the the controversial icon of method acting, I, I think of him as a very talented, but a very self-important and idiosyncratic mess. He had a decorated, but an unquestionably tedentious career. He he plays Jarrell, the father of Kal-El. Kal-El would become Superman. So the Godfather is Superman's dad, folks. <laughs> Vito Colleone is Superman's father. There he is with a white wig, a white outfit with a big S in his chest. He even's got the he's even got the curl of hair over his forehead like Superman does. Apparently Brando was not happy that he would have that hair curl. And they said to him, Superman has a curl and so do you and He allegedly said, over my dead body, but he finally caved and did what he was being grossly overpaid to do. Speaking of being grossly overpaid, you want to sit down for this one if you're not already. Ten minutes, with just ten minutes of screen time filmed across 12 days, when it came to Brando's payday, they ponied up the dough. He got a flat fee of $3.7 million, as well as... A percentage of the movie's box office gross. That resulted in his pocketing a total of $14 million. That roughly averages to more than a million a day if you're working 12 days only, but hang on to yourselves, because there's more. Prando still felt that he was being shortchanged, and he actually tried to sue the producers for an additional $50 million for royalties once the movie became a smash hit. That, good people, is more than likely why he does not appear in the sequel. He did contribute, however, to the original film. He has that SNS chest that I mentioned, and that raises a question. Superman does not get that name, the name of Superman, until after he makes his first appearance to the people of Metropolis. Lois Lane interviews him and thinks of how super he is after she's fawning all over him, and she speaks, sings, Can You Read My Mind, during the night flying over the city streets and over New York Harbor and past the Statue of Liberty. So why would Jorel, Marlon Brando, have the S in his chest if it wouldn't be for a really long time that his son would get the name Superman from Lois Lane? According to Richard Donna, they decided to give everyone on Krypton a family crest to wear, each with its own letter or its own symbol. He said that this was a new idea for the film. It was not a concept that had been previously introduced in the comic books. So, back to the opening credits. The opening credits end, the movie begins on the planet Krypton, Superman's home planet, and Marlon Brando is trying three criminals. Three criminals are on trial in front of Krypton's council. 
These three are insurrectionists. They're power hungry. They want to take over their planet. And as Jarrell puts it, they, quote, threaten evil to the children of the planet of Krypton, end quote. The council proceeds to declare them all guilty. So then, as the verdict is declared, this dome opens up. I swear to God, it looks like the Hollywood Bowl. It opens up and it lets in this flying square-shaped piece of glass. It's a, a prison of sorts for these three villains. It's called the Phantom Zone, created by Krypton's scientists. The three of them are sucked up into it where the where they'll be imprisoned for all eternity. That's the idea anyway, at least until Superman 2. So with the trio out of the picture for a while, they're now in the Phantom Zone, they're caught up in this in this time warp. I'm not exactly sure what it was supposed to be, but you just see them in this in this square-shaped piece of glass flipping and flopping all throughout space. Now Jarrell has another fish to fry. He knows that the planet of Krypton is doomed because it's on some collision course with I don't know if it's another sun or a star or something like that. The council refuses to listen to him. Guess who gets to say, I told you so. So, before Krypton goes kaput, Jarrell and his wife, played by Susanna York, they take their infant son, Kal-El, who would become Superman, and they prepare to ship him off into space towards planet Earth. They want to save his life, and they figure he'll do good on Earth. Well, he does. Malin Brando, Jarrell does. His wife... Not so happy that Earth is his destination. She even turns to her husband and says, But why Earth? They're so behind us. But into the comic bassinet goes baby Kal-El. As his father looks down at him, he delivers a dramatic monologue about what his son is destined to do on Earth and how they will see each other through each other's eyes. It's very much a Mufasa-Simba moment when you think about it. You know, he lives in your reflection, that kind of thing. But before you get too swept away in the emotion of the moment, let me tell you that as Brando was looking at the baby, his son, in the crib so intently, he was reading his lines from the frickin' diaper on this poor kid. Brando felt that memorizing lines ahead of time would result in robotic performances. He preferred to know the gist of what he was supposed to say and then let it all come out organically. There were small cue cards hidden all over, not just in the diaper, but all over the set pieces. He was all about the spontaneity, basically, the realism, and that's method acting, at least in part. So, baby Kal-El, he's off, and we're treated to a sequence that, for me, is unintentionally hysterical. He's This baby is traveling through space in this thing that looks like a demented snowflake. He's listening to recordings of his father's voice droning on and on. Kind of sounds like those static-filled recordings of these narrators at museums, you know, when you got the headsets on and you're taking a walking tour. My favorite bit, though, is a very brief moment when he's in this flying snowflake. He's whizzing through space. He flies right past the Phantom Zone, where all three villains still are, and they're still screaming. And so <laughs> they're all going, ah, and this baby is listening to Marlon Brando as he flies by like there's some kind of an intergalactic four-way intersection. It's a riot. So he crash lands on Earth. He emerges as a little boy in front of this astounded married couple, Jonathan and Martha Kent, and they fall in love with him and bring him home. They raise him as their own, because who wouldn't? So there you have the setup. The origins of Superman, all gussied up and photographed beautifully and given the big screen treatment, presented Hollywood style. And I do mean that sincerely. So now, we segue, at this point in the show, 
into the behind the scenes stuff, the fun facts. And I did my homework and I sifted through a lot of stuff, handpicked the ones that I thought were the most fun or at least the most informative. I whittled it down to 10. So moving forward, these facts may contain spoilers if you're unfamiliar with Superman, so proceed at your own discretion. But if you do hit the pause button now, please don't forget to come back after revisiting the movie. So here we go. Number 10, early in the film, a 14-year-old, maybe 13-year-old Lois Lane is sitting on a train with her parents. She is looking out the window with a pair of binoculars. What does she see? She sees a teenage guy, it's Clark Kent, running alongside the train in super fast motion, keeping up with the train and then surpassing it. She turns to her mother and says, Mom, look, her mother... Lois Lane's mother, her name is Ella, Ella Lane, her mother is played by an uncredited Noelle Neal. Who is Noelle Neal? None other than Lois Lane in the 1950s TV series Adventures of Superman with George Reeves. Number nine. How does $20,000 sound? $20,000. Well, General Mills is the company that puts out the breakfast cereal Cheerios. And when I was a kid watching this movie at the age of 9, 10, 11 years old, I always had an eye for really weird stuff. And I always used to think, wow, you really see that Cheerios box, don't you? Uh, early in the film, Clark Kent's mother, his Earth mother, she takes out a box of Cheerios from the cabinet. And she may as well be thrusting it right into the camera lens because she's... I mean, it was obvious she was told to hold it the way that she does, but she's holding it so that it's very prominent. The next shot, she's setting the breakfast table, and once again, there's the box of Cheerios just front and center on the table, staring straight into the, into the screen. $20,000 they paid for that product placement. This is like something straight out of Wayne's World. So they, the filmmakers pocketed $20,000 in order to show the, so that they would show the, uh, the Cheerios box. Number eight, Jarrell, his father, Marlon Brando. When he decides, when Clark Kent decides it's time to find out who exactly he truly is, he ventures on his own, he ventures north, towards the North Pole. And there, the Fortress of Solitude is built. The Fortress of Solitude. And he takes out this green crystal and he plugs it into some socket. <laughs> and this hologram of his father, Jarrell, appears. And Jarrell speaks to him My son, you have reached your 18th year as it is measured on earth. By that, I will have been dead for many thousands of your years. Clark Kent looks at the hologram. He has one line in this scene. Simply three words. Who am I? Now, again, when I was a kid, I used to think, wow, this guy who's playing young Clark Kent, he may not look like Christopher Reeve, but he sure as heck sounds just like him. Well, Christopher Reeve actually dubbed in all of his lines of dialogue. So this actor, the teenage actor, his voice is never heard in the movie. I just didn't know it at the time. So Christopher Reeve was going to be dubbing in that line, Who Am I? And he wanted to do it live. He was thrilled for the chance to work with Marlon Brando. He knew that he wouldn't appear on screen with Brando. He only had that one line in the scene, but still, you know, I've got to work with Marlon Brando. So he was practicing different ways, different ways of, uh, of stressing different, wor different words in that one line. He was walking around before they shot the scene, practicing to himself, Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? So he's going through this, and 
Someone in the crew saw this, thought it was kind of amusing, overheard him doing this, and went over to Brando, and uh, they set up this little gag before shooting the scene. So they get ready, they begin to shoot the scene. Chris Reeve comes up, he says his, uh, he dubs in the one line in the scene, and the way he, uh, the way he says it is, who am I? Marlon Brando laughed and said, are you going to say it like that? Poor Christopher Reeve was mortified, but Brando started laughing, and then all was good. Number seven, Superman, of course, has to be muscular. He has to fill out the costume. And at first, Christopher Reeve was 6'5 and weighed only 170 pounds. Richard Donner was not fully sold that he made the right casting call, but Reeve said to him, hey, before I went into acting, I was a real jock. I've lost 50 pounds. I can put it on. So Reeve went off with bodybuilder David Prowse for six weeks of physical training. By the end, he was 212 pounds. David Prowse is a name you might recognize. He played Darth Vader in the original Star Wars trilogy. Number six, the role of Lois Lane was down to two actresses, Scream Queen Margot Kidder. She had done a series of horror movies throughout the 70s. She did Sisters for Brian De Palma, Black Christmas for Bob Clark. She was in the original Amityville Horror. Stockard Shanning was the second actress in contention for the role. Stockard Shanning, Rizzo in the movie version of Grease, Academy Award nominee for Six Days of Separation. She did TV's The West Wing. Margot Kidder, of course, got the role. It is said, however, she got the role because of her natural clumsiness, which they found very endearing and very good for the character. Number five. Miss Tessmacher. The first choice for the character of Miss Tessmacher was Goldie Hawn, but Warner Brothers would not pay her. Then they went to go see Anne Margaret, but Warner Brothers would not pay her either. Valerie Perrine was the third choice, and she got the role. Number four. The scene that introduces Superman to the city of Metropolis. This is the scene that when I was a kid, I was used to get very anxious every time the scene would come up. I must have rewatched this movie 10,000 times, but I have always had this irrational, deep-rooted fear of heights and the helicopter sequence. If you remember the helicopter sequence, that really, as a kid, I'm not saying it quote-unquote scared me or freaked me out it was more of just this gnawing dread like i would feel the the tightness in my chest and get all short of breath i should have known right then and there that this is going to be something i was going to have to deal with the fear of heights so lois lane she gets into the helicopter on the top on the rooftop of the of the daily planet building so they built a rooftop in the studio and they also built miniatures of the buildings to pull off this sequence when the helicopter is spiraling out of control that was they used a massive crane for that effect as far as the onlookers onlookers at the city streets below that was filmed on 42nd street it was filmed the night of the july 1977 blackout the studio was filming the scenes in metropolis in new york during the 1977 blackout what happened was uh the cinematographer jeffrey unsworth he plugged a spotlight into a lamppost and it was so they say around that time when the blackout occurred the poor guy genuinely thought for a minute that he was the one to cause the blackout obviously he didn't but the production crew they lent their generators to the new york daily news and it was because of that that the new york daily news was able to get their morning edition out the next day number three 
horror legend Christopher Lee. He was offered the role of General Zod. And I got to say, yes, I can see that, him as General Zod. He had to turn it down, though, because he had just moved to Hollywood to escape Britain's taxes. And some of Superman was shot in Britain. He obviously must have had it all straightened out, though, by the time he did the three Star Wars prequels. Number two, to get the rights to adapt the comic book, the producers had to cater to certain demands from DC Comics, and the publisher ultimately sent along a list of approved actors who were allowed to play Superman. Among the names, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Steve McQueen, Robert Redford, Paul Newman, and Muhammad Ali. Paul Newman was offered $4 million and his choice of roles. They said to him, you can play Superman, you can play Jarrell, or you can play Lex Luthor. But Newman was not interested in playing any of them, so he walked away from the entire offer. Robert Redford was asking for too much money, so he was out of the running. Richard Donna then turned to an unknown actor, Christopher Reeve. He found his Superman in Reeve, and Reeve had an impressive resume because of his theater work with Juilliard. And number one, the top fact Due to increasing tensions, Richard Donner did not complete Superman 2. He was originally going to direct both, 1 and 2, and they were being filmed back-to-back. However, Richard Donner and the producers of the film, there was famously a falling out between them. Alexander and Ilya Salkind, as well as producer Pierre Spengler. There were budget disagreements and scheduling issues, so what happened was the producers drafted a guy named Richard Lester, who had been the director of the Beatles film The Hard Day's Night. They hired Lester to come in as sort of a go-between. And Donna looked at Lester and was like, what are you doing here? And Lester said to him, I'm only here to help, and don't worry, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm only here just to serve as the go-between, the mediator. Donna requested that Lester have no part in the actual production of the films. He felt threatened by his presence, and you know, who can blame him? After Superman was released to massive success in December of 1978, one of the producers spoke to a columnist from Variety at a Christmas party and said, yeah, there was tension, but I'm proud of what Donna did with Superman. I'm looking forward to working with him on the second one. Donna's response was, if he is on Superman 2, I'm not. So that made... You can understand the producer not react well to that uh, to that retort. He said, well, if Donna didn't want to work with me, then we had to find someone to replace the gentleman. So the Salkins turned to the go-between, to Richard Lester, and they said to him, hey, how would you like to direct? How would you like to finish Superman 2? Over half of Superman 2 was already shot. So Richard Lester had to reshoot a lot of it, sometimes even rewrote a lot of it. And the reason why is because, and I'm not sure if this is still the way it is, but at the time, in order to get a director's credit, you had to have directed at least 50% of the film. And over that much had already been filmed by, by Donna. So Margot Kidder even said they hastily rewrote a lot of scenes between Chris and me. Decades later, though, Richard Donna's previously shot footage for the film was restored and re-edited into Superman 2, the Richard Donna cut, which was given a DVD release and which I proudly own. And those are the top 10 fun facts about the production of one of the best flicks coming from Richard Donna's body of work. There were three sequels, two, three, and four in this branch of the franchise, but it's all good to skip three and four, to be honest with you. Richard Donna is 
inextricably linked to this beloved film. And to be fair, to the first sequel as well, to part two. So thanks to his creative vision, we have these first two films to enjoy forever. Before we go, we need to take care of the trivia segment. So, last time we looked at the summer of 1994 with a look back at Speed and True Lies. And the question that I had for you was, Jamie Lee Curtis, star of True Lies, she was known as a scream queen herself. Which of the following horror movies did she not do? Did she not do Halloween, The Fog, or The Evil Dead? And the correct answer is... The Evil Dead. That is the one that is not in her filmography. So, who got that question right? Congratulations are in order to Jamie, a horror movie buff with an appreciation especially for Taurus Trap, Goodnight Mommy, and all things Michael Myers. In addition to Jamie, we also have Zach, a return winner from down in Florida at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. We also have Dave, another horror film buff who nailed us, The Evil Dead, and Drew Bennett of Ben Spock Family Adventures on YouTube, as well as Mike Davis from So This Is Podcasting. So thanks to all of you for playing. Looking forward to seeing you next time. I actually do not have a trivia question for this episode to put out there, and I'll tell you why. Next time, episode 13, Silver Screeners will have its first guest. He is an author, lawyer, and judge. His name is Mark Kantrowitz. Kantrowitz spelled with a K. He is the author of a great book called Old Whiskey and Young Women, American Tales of Murder, Sex, and Scandal. It's a collection of stories about 20th century public scandals, some of them show business related. So he and I are going to be chatting specifically about two of his chapters, two big Hollywood scandals of the 20th century, one involving swashbuckling action superstar Errol Flynn, and the other, the murder trial of Cheryl Crane, who was the daughter of Oscar-nominated actress Lana Turner. Cheryl was accused of killing Lana Turner's husband, Johnny Stompanato. Regardless of whether or not you have seen any of Errol Flynn's or Lana Turner's movies, Whatever you may or may not know about each of their scandals, you will not want to miss this one. So please tune in next time to hear these fascinating stories of two of Hollywood's biggest superstars from the Golden Age. And that's about the size of it. If you have any follow-up questions or if you have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on Superman or all things movie-related, and yes, I am always open, always happy to talk about anything that I covered in any previous episodes as well, just simply hit me up on my socials. On Twitter, FilmBuff1974. You'll find me on Facebook. I have a public Facebook group called Silver Screeners. Go ahead and join. Instagram, you can find me at FrankMendoza1974. You can also email me at FrankMendoza at Yahoo.com. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And no complaints here if you take a second to give the show a rating. Hopefully a five-star rating. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, it helps to boost the algorithms, and that would be very much appreciated. Or if you want to leave a quick review, that would be great as well. As always, I'm Frank, and thank you again for joining me. Until next time, keep on screening. I'll see you.